Hi, I'm Susan Freeman, and a huge welcome to the next in our Property She podcast series, where we'll be hearing from some brilliant property personalities that I think make a massive difference to our sector. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Tyler Goodwin, founder and CEO of London-based property investment company, Seaforth Land. You can be forgiven for not knowing the name, as Tyler only burst onto the London property scene in 2015 when he set up Seaforth Land to invest in central London commercial real estate. This was after 30 years in global real estate in North America, Asia and Europe. I've been fortunate to get to know Tyler a little, being on the Seaforth Advisory Board, and hopefully you'll get to know him during the course of this podcast. Tyler, you were born in Canada... You spent most of your career in the Far East, uh, latterly in Hong Kong. What brought you to London? That's uh, it's a long story. So we've got thirty minutes. So I'll make it short. <laughs> um, so I was a uh, a banker at J.P. Morgan uh, as managing director there. I had a client based in Mumbai uh, called Loda Developers, and uh, we did a joint venture with them, a residential joint venture. So got to know them. That was back in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Then I uh, represented them in a debt restructuring in 2009, post-global financial crisis, got to know them a little bit better. And uh, in 2013, uh, post-GFC and and things had gone well with the debt restructuring, they wanted to expand their business into the UK. And so I advised them on that. And eventually they asked me to come here and be their CEO. I was talking to one of the uh, firms of um, surveyors that you work with, and I said, how would you describe Tyler? And they thought for a minute, they said the archetypal disruptor. Oh, my. Does that ring a bell? Is that is that how you would describe yourself? Um, I'm certainly not a conformist. I think you'd probably <laughs> agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not afraid to be different. I'm not afraid to do things differently. I think that term is uh, used a lot right now. I think our, our, our business is, is to be contrarian and... Uh, you know, by being contrarian, you're you're often going against uh, against the the flow. Um, so I, I, I suppose we're a bit of a disruptor, but we're more. I think we're just very independent in our in our view and our approach. And I think myself personally, I'm kind of my wife Vera uh, refers to me as the banker non banker. Uh, I've never even you know working at Deutsche and J P Morgan. I don't think I've ever kind of fit that mold and never wanted to really fit that mold. So having been in London for a few years now. Is there anything that has really surprised you about the UK real estate sector, uh, as opposed to the experience that you've had to date in um, in the Far East? Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a great question. And and so when I came here as uh, as a CEO of Loda, uh, we had some some great earliest success with acquisition of One Grosvenor Square and, and Forty Eight Carey Street, but things didn't work out with them. And uh, so I was in London saying, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay? Do I go back to to Asia where I'd spent 20 years? Um, And so actually I did a bit of a global roadshow uh, meeting with my peers, uh, meeting with, you know, the the largest institutional investors in in Asia and North America and and Canada and and some in in London, uh, just to share what I'd learned. Um, And also to kind of I think a lot of people were surprised that I'd leave J.P. Morgan to take this role uh, and and so to share my experiences and, and my insights, but also to learn more about where people's minds were at, institutional investors' minds were at in the London market. 
the perception of the London market from the outside is kind of London and, and New York are neck and neck. It's London number one, New York number two, or vice versa. If you look at the third most important uh, gateway city for institutional capital, it's a broad debate, but it's a distant third. I, and uh, so people tend to paint uh, paint London, uh, and I think I was guilty of that early in my career, painting painting London with the same brush that you'd paint New York. Um, so, But in fact, the level of capitalization in this market is probably the one significant characteristic that I witnessed firsthand in coming here. Uh, and, you know, a few anecdotal examples. If you look at the top 10, uh, you know, REITs uh, in, uh, or, or listed property companies in London, you know, numbers 7 through 10 might have a cap, a market cap of $2 billion. Uh, if you go to New York and you look at the capitalization of pub- listed public real estate companies, they're in the tens of billions. I mean, they're 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 significantly larger. The same applies to open-ended property funds. Uh, you know, the multiples in scale of which there is liquidity in the in the London in the New York market versus the London market. I think uh, it means that transactions here are done in a very different way. You still have the same level of volume. Uh, and uh, and uh, actually, London interestingly has even greater liquidity than New York. Um, but uh, but I think the uh, the the type of capital that invests here is often more of a trading capital, and it's built on often in our industry. It's it's dominated by people that may have their background in the brokerage industry and then go on to build their own real estate companies. And there are a lot of great real estate investors whose DNA you know follow that route. Uh, in, in fact, you know, I did my first uh, first four years in, in CB, uh, Coldwell Banker in Canada, and uh, Coldwell Banker commercial. But I think that, that often it, it drives strategy and it leads to much more of a trading uh, philosophy, and uh, which attracts a different form of capital or a different type of capital as well. So I'd say the capitalization is probably the biggest uh, surprise thing that I'd learned when, I, when I'd come here, but also uh, what defined the opportunity for us. So you weren't tempted by New York? No, I've I've worked in New York, and uh, I mean I I think New York is is fantastic. It's a great city. London is an extraordinary city, and this is home for me. Given a choice between those two, I think I'd be kidding myself to start up Seaforth Land in New York as a first market. I'd probably get my ass handed to me, to mm-hmm. be honest. So it's our gain that you decided to set up Seaforth Land in London. And the Seaforth mission is to be Central London's best commercial real estate operating partner for institutional clients. Tell me a little bit about how Seaforth go about achieving that. So when we when I did this global roadshow and, and meeting with clients, I spent a lot of time with clients in my career. Uh, a lot of the largest in Asia, the largest institutional investors in the world. Uh, and uh, it, there are a few characteristics that I believe... The, the sophisticated institutional capital uh, that are investing directly in real estate are looking for. Um, you know, one of the most critical elements is is certainly a focus, a disciplined focus. I mean, we've chosen to be disciplined by asset class. We're focused exclusively on commercial, and we're looking at residential all the time uh, as a as a longer term opportunity for the business, but at the moment we are solely commercially focused and geographic focused. Uh, you know we are focused uh, exclusively in central London. 
that discipline focus, uh, but also being an operating partner. So we're not we're not an investor. Uh, we're not a trader. We we do those things, but our our responsibility to the client is to uh, to provide a service throughout the investment life cycle. Uh, and and that for us, I think, uniquely uh, starts with research. Uh, so we do our own in house research. Uh, I think it's 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 a it's a significant differentiator. But it also, getting back to the point on discipline, what it forces us to do is make investments driven by research, develop strategy driven by research, as opposed to identifying opportunities, creating research to support the investment thesis, and then presenting that to the client. So being transparent with our client uh, is probably the last, you know, most important uh, criteria. We we create data rooms. Uh, we do um, bi-monthly calls uh, with our clients and, and share all of our information, all of our analysis, all of our pipeline. And that's that's an investment in a relationship. Uh, for the client, when something like CAA House comes up, um, you know, they're in a position to, to, to move quickly uh, to capitalize on an off-market opportunity. Um, you know, we're, we're out right now speaking with... Uh, a lot of prospective clients, mm. uh, but our business is is probably a five client business. For us to be successful, if we've got five programmatic JVs and a separate managed account structure, um, where these are clients that have strategic allocations to this market rather than tactical, and the difference between a tactical allocation in a in a you know in an institutional context would be. You know, investing in Hong Kong, you'd you'd want to invest in Hong Kong at uh, at only certain points in the cycle. Uh, whereas, because London, like New York, uh, has a lot of liquidity uh, and and strong volumes, but also because of that, you've got a, a strong floor, and you've got a reliable user base, a tenant base. Uh, you've got the the ability to create long term, you know, reliable cash flows, and uh, and so. You know, the uh, for the London market, we we are looking at uh, probably three or four or five clients that can deliver that, or that are interested in us delivering that. And they're likely to be international um, from Asia or from North America. Yeah, I, um, I, and Europe. Mm. Um, but uh, but because of my, um, I mean, obviously I'm Canadian. Uh, you know, I think the the DNA at J.P. Morgan and Deutsche Bank. Uh, I understand the the language of the, the more institutional investors. There are a lot of European investors as well um, that I would rank in the. I mean, if you look at the Dutch pension funds, like or, or even the Australian pension funds, the Canadian pension funds, the, some of the sovereign wealth funds. Those organizations where their real assets allocations are ten percent and up, you know, those are probably the the clients who have have enough uh, interest in direct investing as opposed to indirect through funds. So let's talk about your most recent purchase, one of London's most notable brutalist landmarks, CAA House. I prefer the earlier name actually, Space House. Yeah, me too. Um, so you. Uh, Bought it quite recently from Almacanta. It's uh, it's Grade Two listed. It's in Kingsway. So why did you buy it? Was it was it something you had your your eye on because of the brutalist architecture? And can you tell us a little bit about what you have planned for it? Yeah, I'd love love to. Um, the uh, so so the the seed of that uh, opportunity actually started 
with our our business plan from uh, you know when we were in 2017 writing our research for 2018, we wrote something called Rethinking 2018. Um, and rethinking is a, it's a kind of recurring theme in our research. RE is real estate thinking 2018. Uh, and one of the things that we did a detailed analysis on is net stock absorption, which we you might recall we got into a bit of hot water because some people in the market didn't like us shining a spotlight on net stock absorption. But in 2017, you had uh, about 3 million square feet in negative net stock absorption. And, and we reported on that and we reported on you know, the fact that the cost of Brexit made it incrementally quite a bit higher than that. It was 6.2 million total cost of Brexit last year or up to the end of 2017. Um, but one of the things that we, we identified is we did a sub-market analysis, analysis on net stock absorption. And Midtown in 2017 actually had positive net stock absorption. So whereas the broader market was declining in values, the Midtown market vacancy rate actually declined by 1.1% and rents were firming up. And uh, with a vacancy rate at close to 3.3%, depending on who you'd listen to, and a lack of future supply coming in in 2019 and 2020, new stock is supposed to be close to zero. Um, that That means you're approaching frictional vacancy rate. And we identified, uh, I think, a submarket that we started to mine. And so we were already pursuing another asset in that area. So again, start with the research, let the research tell you where to invest, develop a strategy around it, and then mine the market. And, uh, you know, CAA, we'd been monitoring for some time. There were some expectations of higher pricing. We'd done all the work. It didn't make economic sense, and uh, we kept it on the monitor until uh, until the pricing came in line with where we believed we could make money on it. Yes, that's great. And I, you probably know this, but uh, for those of us that aren't able to own our own space house, you can actually buy a cardboard model of it, courtesy of Brutal London. Yeah, so I've got it. I think, oh, you've got it. <laughs> yeah, okay. we bought it for all the teams. The architecture is extraordinary, and, uh, you know, it's Marsh um, that, that actually did did the design, uh, Richard Seaford Architects. I just think it's iconic. Um, when we started doing the due diligence, we discovered uh, something that made me from made us all from excited to really passionate about what we can do with the space. And that is uh, that first of all, it's it, the the buildings were assembled like uh, like out of building blocks, so it was all precast construction. And uh, so the floors have these precast fins. Uh, so it's not like columns. There, there are these precast fins that hang down. And in the tower itself versus the block, the Kingsway block, the tower at one Kemble, uh, it's, it's clear span. It's column-free from the central core to the outside perimeter. And the perimeter of the structure is a structural. It's not just beautiful to look at it's 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 it forms the exterior structure of the building and so you've got these beautiful radiating fins uh that we're going to expose uh and you've got this great gap of about 40 centimeters wide by 22 centimeters deep so we can we're exploring right now mep solutions that include like multi-service chilled beam technology uh but bringing services up into the fins and making for a really clean exposed surface but with that brutalist you're really bringing the brutalist architecture from the outside into the space and letting tenants celebrate that space 
One thing I, I hadn't realised, obviously, I knew it had been designed by Richard Seifert um, in the same way as Centrepoint, but um, I read somewhere the reason that it's circular is because of um, rights of light, that the only way they could get round rights of light was to actually make it circular rather than rectangular. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I hadn't read that one. I've read uh, some because he was a bit of a, a space nut. And that was a time, I mean, it was designed. We've got uh, this rendering that we found in RABA's uh, archives that show it as built in 1960. And it wasn't built until 68. So you can imagine, I mean, they really put a lot of thought and work into it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's... For whatever reasons, I mean, he was also, uh, Seifert was meant to be a planning genius uh, and kind of gamed the system and worked the system to, to deliver uh, something that, um, that, was, uh, that was iconic. And I think the center point was designed around the same time. And I think that's also, it's a great example of beautiful architecture. And a shout out to Al McCanter. I, I think Mike, uh, Mike and his team have done a really extraordinary job on it. Uh, so, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, we point to that and say, okay, you know, this is an example of a before and after. And, uh, and it's really, it's driving us to, to kind of set a new standard for, with, uh, with Space House. Um, we plan on activating the plane at the, the ground floor plane, uh, creating food and beverage and retail and placemaking and, and giving, giving the public, places that they can sit there and enjoy coffee and enjoy the architecture we we also are i mean it is a listed building um you know we're we're spending a lot of money on on cleaning and actually main re-maintaining the building because there's been patch up work that's been done that you can see now has aged differently in time uh, and so we really want to bring it back to its former glory when it was built so we're really excited about it. I'm really excited about it, especially as it uh, is a short walk from my office. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things we've talked about a, a little bit when comparing Hong Kong real estate, London, London real estate, is the diversity issue and the difficulty of recruiting women at senior uh, level into, into real estate. I wondered if you had any particular thoughts on that one. Oh, you're really teeing me up on that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a problem. Uh, I mean, I heard the term the other day, uh, stale, male, and pale, uh, you know, describing our, our industry. You know, I spent 13 years in Hong Kong. And uh, if you think about Hong Kong and China and doing business there, especially the Chinese one-child policy, what it really created was this uh, was this culture where from a young age, their daughters are told, don't let anybody tell you you can't do whatever you want to do. And it's, it's created some incredible business leaders. And, you know, in, in our industry at J.P. Morgan and Deutsche, you know, we were pretty close to 50-50 men and women. And you underestimated a woman at your peril. Uh, you just wouldn't do it. And, uh, and I really, you know, I've come here and I know it's, it's more and more people are becoming aware of it. Um, we've actually got a search. Uh, so so you can't advertise, uh, which I did once and got called out, like within 24 hours. You cannot put that you're looking for. A, I mean, I had to take it down. Uh, and uh, and so we're, we've hired a, a firm, uh, Ferguson Partners, and they are really, I think, uh, Serena Althaus and 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 Chloe Duckworth uh, are both working on this mandate for to find us 
you know, senior women. Uh, I think it's important for our business. Uh, we're investment managers. Uh, we're we're investing in product uh, and creating environments that, you know, are are there for the entire population, not just built for men. Um, but also, if you look at the the quality of investment decisions, there's a lot of research that shows that a, you know a balanced investment committee takes the testosterone out of investment decisions. Um, it also, in terms of a work environment, it creates a much more respectful and balanced work environment. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons why I think it's uh, it's it's important to have diversity. I, I you know, we are kind of the United Nations in our office, as you've, you've seen in terms of uh, where people come from. Uh, but we're not uh, there yet with regards to, you know, diversity and, and attracting women um, at a senior level. And, and to get that one solved first, which Ferguson knows it's, it's my highest priority, uh, then sends a message to other women that want to join Seaforth that there's no glass ceiling, uh, you know, that there's room for growth. It's a meritocracy. Well, I endorse all that. And uh, Tyler, just so that um, our listeners can get an idea about about you, if they don't know you, you travel around London on a motorcycle and you generally arrive at meetings wearing or carrying a helmet and um is that is that a good way of getting around or um it's amazing i mean i'm i'm you're 30 minutes from anywhere in this town on a motorcycle and uh if you're in a car it's challenging uh sometimes the tube is all right but uh it's a great way to learn the city you know, if if you think about location, 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 just the fundamentals that people, I believe really what we're talking about is amenity value. And amenity value is often driven by access and egress, uh, which is driven by transportation linkages and, and road flows. And, and the best way to experience a city, uh, I believe, is, uh, you know, walk the streets, which I also do. So I walk a lot, to a lot of meetings and uh, and uh, get on your 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 bike. And so on weekends, I'll actually get on my bicycle and tour different markets. Uh, it's a great way to, to see the city and experience it and see where there's pockets of density, where there's path of growth, where there's really interesting new new shops or coffee shops and where where the youth are congregating, where, you know, uh, tourism footfall is. These are all things that drive value. It does have its downside. I seem to remember you were a little bit late for a meeting recently because there was a doctor's appointment, but perhaps we'll just uh, skim over that one. Uh, yeah, there is a, the, and the, the pun of a downfall. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, there's there's risks, but there's risks on a bicycle and there's risks on a motorcycle and there's risks walking and life's kind of short. I really enjoy it, so I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Um, I think I'll, I'll hold out for the motorised scooters. I think that's going to be my mode of transport and in in london at the weekend how how do you spend how do you spend your downtime i work a lot these days i mean we're we're a three-year-old business uh and i've got uh i mean we all have big plans for for seaforth um so you know i i i work at least one day on the weekend um and uh, i've got two fantastic kids an 18 year old boy connor and a 16 year old girl talia and an incredible wife, Vera, who we've just celebrated 20 years together, um, who's really a partner. I mean, a, a partner in, in, in life, but also, you know, has been incredibly supportive in my business and, uh, and taking this, you know, we started out of, you know, an office in my house and, uh, 
you know, we're we're we've now got a world class team and and making world class investments, and and she's been there through the the whole ride. So we like to uh, we like to get out. We're we're kind of foodies, and uh, but also we we just like to you know walk the streets. And there's so much to offer. I mean, London has so much to offer. Uh, so yeah, spend time with the family. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you on that one. And uh, it should be an interesting year ahead against the backdrop of um, uncertainty on various times, which should present opportunities for, for you and Seaforth. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can see why Tyler Goodwin is uh, described as the archetypal disruptor. And I think we'll be hearing a lot more from Tyler Goodwin and Seaforth Land in the coming years. So that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. And please join me for the next Property Sheet interview. In the meantime, please subscribe to the Property Sheet podcast, which you'll find on your Apple podcast app. If you want to get in touch, email me via our Property Sheet webpage on mishcon.com slash Property And of course, follow me on Twitter at Property She for details of our next guests. Thanks for listening and see you again soon.